Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise and informative update. It's Thursday, the 8th of February. Coming up, government's performance under intense scrutiny in this State of the Nation week. What civil society is looking for from government in an election year? The continuing slide of the ANC in opinion polls. The importance of fact-checking in a charged political environment and new risks attached to mining exploration. Ahead of the Thursday State of the Nation address and in a report just released by the presidency, the official view is that despite a decade of poor economic performance, the scourge of COVID-19 and daily blackouts, much has been done to improve the lives of South Africans during President Ramaphosa's office. So let's weigh in now with an expert assessment as I talk to Adrian Saville from the economics consultancy Boundless World. He's also attached to the Gordon Institute of Business Science. And Adrian, based Based on the Leave No One Behind 2024 review report and the mentioned initiatives, how would you assess government's overall performance then in improving the lives of South Africans during what has been a very difficult term? Jeremy, if you take a very long-term view you know, and you compare South Africa today to 30 years ago, on many fronts, the country is in, in a, an infinitely better place. We don't live in that country that used to exist. Um, and, and I think, you know, particularly from a perspective of political participation and, uh, and civil liberties. But when we, you know, take a crisper lens and, you know, apply uh, metrics uh, that include employment levels, economic engagement, incomes per person, inequality, and social and economic exclusion then it's very, very hard to make a case that the government has done a good job under Sir Ramaphosa's most recent uh, presidency. Let's talk about that economic engagement, Adrian. The report mentions $1.5 trillion in new investment commitments, more than $500 billion already infused into the economy. Those are big numbers. How do you mm. evaluate the impact? Yeah. Well, you know, they're numbers and it's policy speak or it's political speak. The easiest way to assess this is to get you know, away from the storyboard and the narrative and just go and look at the published economic statistics by, uh, that come from the South African Reserve Bank. And when you take that uh, sober lens to the GDP numbers, it's evident that South Africa has been in an investment drought for uh, the better part of 15 years. The last time we truly had buoyant investment spending, the type of spending that would fuel fast and inclusive economic growth, you have to rewind all the way to the build of um, 
the highways and airports and stadiums around the time of the World Cup 2010. Mm. So what I'm hearing you saying is that the numbers might be impressive, but when it comes to translation into tangible economic development and job creation at a scale that was anticipated, that really has failed Mm. to transpire. Yeah, you know, you're saying it um, differently and perhaps better than me, but it's exactly that. It's all well and good to, you know, make an announcement that X billion or X trillion has been promised or pledged, and we need to do a couple of things with that. The first, we have to first we have to make sure that we're not double counting. In other words, are these promises that already existed? Are we just vocalizing what was already committed? That's the first aspect of double counting. The second is the, you know, and I don't mean to infer that there's any sort of deceit in this, but you would expect uh, uh, politicians to be talking a big game. And where we need to adjust the numbers is not just how big is the uh, investment spend, but over how many years Mm. so that we can translate this into a per year investment amount. And then importantly, is the investment spend replacement investment spend uh, or is it new investment spend in addition to uh, replacement investment spend. And that's where, you know, my cynicism comes in here is when we reverse out of the of the big number, uh, the 1.1 trillion and go and look at the actual investment spend per year over the last five, 10 years, the numbers are simply missing in action. That investment spending just doesn't exist. Adrian, then the report goes on to the Just Energy Transition Investment Plan, and here are the numbers. $12 billion mm-hmm. in financial pledges are secured through partnership. So the evaluation of the potential impact of this plan on South Africa's energy sector and economy uh, should be a good one, given that we're still experiencing yes. high levels of load shedding. But again, that hasn't necessarily Mm. translated into anything tangible. Well, uh, you know, here, let me be a little bit more cheerful, Jeremy, is uh, there is an extremely robust policy framework. If South Africa, you know, has really shone on one front, um, (laughs) uh, perhaps uh, puns not intended, (laughs) but if we've, you know, shone on one uh, front, a light to point would be at the Renewable Energy Public-Private Partnership Framework. Uh, You know, that really has been um, impressive. And it's translated into uh, new investment spend. And by definition, we can say it, uh, it's new investment because that uh, uh, infrastructure didn't exist historically. So it is new projects, new investment spend, it's green fields. And if this is carried out effectively, I think it points to a South Africa that could be not in no load shedding, but perhaps in you know, a consistent state of stage one uh, load shedding, perhaps as soon as the end of this year or early next year. Just a final one then. The obvious question is all very well in that respect, but is this going to address long-term energy security concern and reduce the frequency of daily blackouts? Mm. So, you know, my last observation about a permanent state of stage one, you know, that seems to be more realistic now, and what I mean by permanent state is, you know, multiple uh, years, uh, five years, uh, 10 years. As things stand, it's hard to see a complete uh, reversal or elimination of load shedding. But it certainly takes us to, you know, what we have on the table takes us to a far healthier uh, state of relatively consistent uh, energy supply where we'd live in, in a stage one rather than the uncertainty of is it going to be three, four or five and a permanent stage one is infinitely better, even though it's not perfect, it's infinitely better than the uncertainty of is it three, four or five.
stability um, means that we can plan better. Adrian Savile, thank you very much indeed for the uh, the very succinct analysis. I do appreciate it. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, let's push all of this a little further then. In this State of the Nation Week, a coalition of civil society organizations is urging for strong leadership that it wants to embold transformative measures to navigate the country towards a future where equality, care and the well-being of citizens are paramount. All very lofty ideals. Well, civil society activist Matsudiso Lengwasa uh, is with us now. And given the concerns raised about what you term discrepancy, between commitments made in SONAS and the actual resource allocation by the National Treasury. The question then is, how can government ensure that future budgets align more closely with stated policy priority? Thank you. So, yes, that is true that one of the issues that we've had um, as civil society organizations, but also I believe the country at large is that every year there are commitments that are being made and promises and many of those are great they're good for human rights however the budget speech that follows that two weeks later um those allocation those commitments don't have enough resource allocation in fact many of them have been defunded over the years so it makes you wonder how is government expected to achieve those things or how we able to realize some of that service delivery, some of those commitments, if there isn't actually resources to achieve that. So, for example, one notable example actually is that over the past few years, the president has referred to gender-based violence and femicide in this country as a pandemic as well. And we welcome that. However, and they've made commitments about eliminating the scourge of this in our society, which is great for gender inequality in the country. However, the budget speech then will have budget cuts both in nominal terms and in real terms. So after accounting for inflation, that end up meaning that there are fewer resources available to actually to resource these interventions Mm. to eliminate some of those issues. And so really what we're calling for is that, yes, we like the sound of a human rights-based state of the nation address and recognizing the the constitutional rights of education, of healthcare, uh, and many others uh, of eliminating youth unemployment. However, this is it will just fall flat if there are no resources to actually realize that are invested to actually realizing these commitments. And sadly, that is the nature of politics the world over, isn't it? Make big promises, uh, but ultimately it comes down to expediency that uh, it's all about the follow through, which so often doesn't happen. That's so true. And it's it really is unfortunate. And we see that also with the budget itself. So on the one hand, yes, we call for sufficient resourcing. But what we've seen over the past few years is that the country has a chronic underspending issue. So there'll be, for example, education infrastructure, health infrastructure that will get sufficient funding on a national level. But then there are reports on a like provincial level that, for example, the Eastern Cape or Mpumalanga had to return money that was actually allocated but was not spent. So really, we do have a problem with execution. There are a lot of promises and a lot of things that are actually said politically and as you mentioned the world over it's the status quo globally however when we don't actually create fiscal policy or budgets that can actually be centered in human rights like we're missing out on an opportunity to actually use the budget for redistributive measures to eliminate unemployment inequality and poverty in this country 
All right, so you've raised the issue there. No doubt you've given thought to alternative fiscal strategies that can be adopted to support development goals, but at the same time also ensuring economic stability. Yes, so the Budget Justice Coalition is formed by many civil society organizations, many of whom specialize in uh, restructuring the revenue side. How do we generate more revenue to, in a way that advances human rights, not just the economy, because also reducing like austerity measures, like cutting down on the funds that people have available means that there's less demand, means that there's not as much economic growth as there should be. And so what alternatives are there? And so the Institute of Economic Justice, the Alternate uh, Information Development Center, and many others really do lay out alternatives, many of whom we implore National Treasury to be thinking about that, to be thinking beyond the status quo of we have an issue okay you you know like basically what we're really calling for is whenever whatever fiscal policy or budget decisions that are made or decisions on resources that are made they actually center human rights so if there are going to be for example budget cuts that are made they are made with participatory human rights impact assessments that are embedded in the process so that even in the worst case scenario in an underfunding situation which we have seen last year notably that we can still protect the right to education the right to healthcare that we don't have a situation where we have doctors that are unemployed in a country and yet there's a huge demand for um, healthcare services and really the way to do that is to create a budget policy that is actually entrenched that has participatory human rights impact assessments embedded in that and that's just one example of ways that we can align budget policy to the huge political commitments because after when once you start exploring that and start structuring the budget in that way you'll see that many of these promises they seem ambitious but they don't have to be they can actually be achieved if we actually mm-hmm. just commits if we just have a budget that commits to that if we have the resources to achieve that all right thank you for giving me that alternative view uh, much thank you very much indeed money web at midday for all your up-to-date stories all right, let's move from national policy now to party politics in this election year, and we should have a date in the next fortnight or so. David Everett, professor of the Witz School of Governance, says the decline of the ANC in polling numbers seems unstoppable, but he also contends there is no obvious successor that is emerging. He joins me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And Professor, first of all, then, how are you interpreting the ANC's continuous decline in popularity? I think that uh, there has inevitably a party that's been in power for that long has to keep doing quite new and novel things to maintain people's interest and their desire to vote. And I think, uh, to be fair to the ANC, as, as or to the government, as Ramaphosa has said, his term has basically been about recovering from COVID, recovering from state capture and recovering from uh, the KZN violence. And so people haven't seen, and of course the economy is tanking at the same time, which COVID helped. So they haven't been able to do very much uh, that citizens would think, gosh, that's worth voting for. And I think secondly, you know, in politics, a, a ruling party, whether it's at city or province or national level, can irritate its voters once or twice a year. Um, and they'll probably forgive you. Mm. But I think through load shedding, government uh, has made itself an irritation to people every single day of their lives. 
And I think that, and that then comes along with the, the revelations of, of corruption and so on. So we have this sense that we're, we're being demeaned by our own government uh, and that people are enriching themselves at our expense, not just financial, but our quality of life. And so I think all of that combines to put the ANC in a very, very awkward corner where they, they genuinely don't have much to say other than look at our track record over 30 years we've done good things but i think people vote uh, in hope for the future rather than as an evaluation of the past and i'm not sure the anc is offering anything terribly new or exciting and i would imagine that that uh, disenchantment that you talk about almost has an exponential effect is that uh, it just gets bigger and bigger in people's minds yes and and i think as i say you know if you're if you're affecting people every day um, whether it's hitting a pothole in your car, whether it's your, you know, your appliances blowing up uh, because you've been load shot too often, etc., you just become incredibly angry with with government and the sense that they simply don't understand what it means to us as citizens. And then you're told that you know they live in 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 uh, areas that are, are guaranteed all the services that we are denied. So I think every day it just gets bigger and worse. Uh, and people are well the ANC is in this downward spiral and and our data suggest and uh, Ipsos data came out a a few days later and was almost exactly the same they're in real trouble Uh, you know before we worry about taking out registered voters and so on and who's going to vote and all that stuff they're below 40 percent they go above 40 percent when you re-percentage the data but that's a fairly scary position for them to be in, I think. And you have this, and excuse the pun, this wounded buffalo in the ring right now, yet you also write about the Democratic Alliance and the EFF only attracting around a fifth or a sixth of voters, respectively. It seems extraordinary that they're unable to capitalize on this decline. I find it remarkable. I mean, if there was ever a moment when a large, vibrant opposition you know, even if it's only feeding off uh, what the ANC is doing wrong, if it doesn't have anything anything important to offer, um, you know, this is its moment, uh, and it seems just not to be there. Uh, neither the e- the DA nor the EFF can break through the the twenty percent ceiling. And the reason for that is uh, a lack of ideas, as far as they're concerned. Is it uh, voter mistrust? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's probably a mix of of those and others. I don't think either party has said anything new. And really, their position seems to be we're not the ANC and almost by definition, we will do better. And I think that's not enough to excite voters. I think in the case of the EFF, it has grown, but it's only grown by a percent or two. And that's really holding it back from becoming uh, a much more powerful and potentially the official opposition. And part of that, when you look at the leadership slides, uh, Julius Malema is very well known. But he's also very strongly disliked uh, by more than half the people who know his name. And so I think the the very thing that draws voters to them, which is this abrasive, aggressive, disrespectful, you know, shout down politicians approach is exactly the approach that is also repelling a lot of voters from actually casting their ballot for them. I think in the DA's case um, in the Western Cape, their position on Palestine will not have helped them at all. Uh, certainly, it stands in complete contrast with, with the ANC and the government's position. And I think what we found about the DA nationally is that historically, they've always had a very committed cadre who were passionate about the DA, who, who believed they were saving the nation. This was a, a kind of moral duty, not just an electoral one. That seems to have dropped quite dramatically. 
so that I vote for the DA because it's my party and I'll vote for it. But there's nothing much more than that. And if you lose that activist core, they're the people who go out and mobilize other people like them to vote for you. And I think that's uh, diminished in the DA. And finally, of course, they've managed to get through so many black leaders that their black vote is, is really tiny now. And if you don't have a black African voter base, you're not in the game. Mm. David, it's wired into the DNA of any politician that they have to be optimistic. And President Ramaphosa, in spite of the Ipsos poll saying, and I quote, he can smell victory. That 39%, do you think the ANC can change it uh, ahead of the poll? Or do you think that that number is likely either to stabilize or even drop further? I certainly don't. I mean, I, I, you know, the campaign will now begin. They'll launch their manifesto, this, um, and they do have an impressive uh, electoral machinery. They're the only party that can get to virtually every township, every street, every block, etc. But whether they are, as a result of that, able to do more than increase by a point or two, I doubt very much, because this, the, the, the gap between 39 and 50% plus one is massive. Mm. And the will to disbelieve the ANC is so strong that it's perfectly appropriate that Ramaphosa should be optimistic because he's lifting the ANC. I mean, he's far more popular than the party he leads. And historically, there have only been two presidents that have lifted the ANC, and that was Mandela in the 1990s, and now it's Ramaphosa. And in between, the ANC has always lifted its presidents, and now they're relying on him to try and lift their vote. So he has to sound positive because he's the best asset that the ANC has right now. And now we wait for the election date. David Ebert, thank you very much indeed. Top stories to keep your eyes and ears on. Now, in, in this week of the mining in Darba, Chris Green, managing partner, corporate and finance at Hogan Lovells, says for African mining to fulfill its potential to create wealth and drive development, undiscovered resources need to be discovered, obviously, but finance is extracted and then properly utilized. Chris, a very warm welcome. Thank you for joining us. You talk about so much potential in terms of explore, exploration. What are we not doing right? So, Jamie, thanks for having me. I mean, I think that some of the issues facing the mining sector in relation to exploration and mine development are, are obvious and commonly spoken about. Um, you know, I think some of the, the, the main impediments from our perspective are regulatory uncertainty in a number of jurisdictions which are, which are mineral rich. Um, I think that that is exacerbated by infrastructure and logistics constraints, road, rail, port in particular, and then obviously the significant energy constraints that there are in a number of these markets. Um, and I think that obviously we need to we address those issues in order to unlock a lot of this potential that we talk about. And uh, a lot, uh, a lot of work to be done in that respect. The infrastructure side is possibly easier to resolve, but uh, regulation is perhaps more difficult to traverse. I mean, often that's the case, Jeremy. I mean, I think what a lot of investors look for is certainty, um, policy, and, and regulatory certainty. I think that you find, you know, even in markets with with more challenging regulatory regimes, uh, even if even if investors can see some stability in that regime, they can generally find a way through it. Um, the problems arise when, um, you know, there's ever-changing regulation and, and, and policy uh, considerations. But that's a reality that you have to deal with. Uh, again, how do you meet that challenge and overcome it? So I think a lot of it comes down to early-stage engagement between business and government in relation to these issues. Uh, we often see when we advise on these transactions that they go some way down the line before you know, real consideration is given to the regulatory environment and, and how business can play a part with government in influencing that. I think if there's early stage stakeholder engagement between business, other stakeholders and government, uh, that can, you know, go some way towards addressing those issues. Obviously, there needs to be political will on the side of government as well. 
Um, and I think we are seeing that in some of the jurisdictions in which we work. Uh, things have become far more stable over the last few years in Tanzania, for example. Our government has now announced the long-awaited reform of the cadastral system, and, and hopefully we see some, some rapid implementation on that front. In terms of uh, the cost of exploration and the risk that is attached to that, is that growing exponentially and has that become an impediment? I think that the reason that the cost is growing is that there's obviously an enhanced focus on things like ESG now and and how parties need to go about addressing that in in, the course of moving forward with these transactions. Um, But that being the case, I think... You know, business needs to be looking at, at considerations like ESG, particularly the governance side of things, as, a, as effectively a license to do business. Um, there is obviously a funding gap, and, and a large part of what we need to work out is how do we close that funding gap? And I think that, you know, there are um, innovative financing mechanisms that are being put into play in the industry, and I think that there are other things that can be done again between, uh, between governments and investors to help close that funding gap. How do you better incorporate ESG thinking or in, ESG uh, into strategic thinking? I think, again, a lot of it comes back to what I said earlier is, is seeing ESG as a, as a license to do business and not simply a, a compliance framework where you need to check the box. Yeah, but that's, um, not, always, so that's not always the case, though, is it? It's, it's not always the case, but I do think that there is evolving thinking along, amongst international investors in relation to ESG. Um, and I think we're seeing that play itself out, particularly in, in revised thinking with respect to the treatment of local communities and, and how businesses need to address that as one example. Um, I think there's been significant evolution on that front and, and that we are moving in the right direction. And just a final one, you also talk about uh, opportunity in implementing disruptive technology within the African mining supply chain. What's your thinking in that respect? So, I mean, when we talk about disruption, I think we talk about it from a number of perspectives, technology being one of them. And, and we had a panel discussion at the mining in Daba this morning where we touched on the role that uh, the rise of AI has to play in the mining sector. Uh, and, and that starts right at the beginning of the value chain with you know, the collation and analysis of, of vast amounts of geological data, which is currently fairly manual, um, and how that can be used, you know, in also in terms of plotting out new source availability and, and, and the approach to exploration. Um, that's just one. There's obviously a lot of talk at the Indabra about automation and, and how we use that for purposes of smart mining and the like. Um, all of that, again, I think there's significant opportunity that comes with challenges, because when you start talking about automation, you obviously have to start talking about workforces and possible implications for uh, for labour. Um, so these are all related issues that we need to deal with. Chris Green, thank you very much. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favourite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy podcast published just after seven moneyweb now with me simon brown to start your day informed moneyweb at midday for all your up-to-date stories and our final port of call, a coalition of media organizations supported by the Google News Initiative and led by Africa Check, is working to combat misinformation ahead of the South African election. In conversation now with the uh, Deputy Chief Editor at Africa Check, Kayleigh Clifford, a very warm welcome to you. What are the primary sources then of election-related misinformation in this country? Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. Um, there are a number of sources of misinformation in the run-up to the election. It's, of course, a time when political parties are trying to convince voters that they can govern effectively, and in doing so, they often share claims and promises to demonstrate this. Um, so that's one source of misinformation. 
But we know, of course, that social media can be a, a huge conduit for false information as well. And there we see claims not just from political parties, but from regular people, um, whether they're genuinely misinformed about certain issues or deliberately trying to spread disinformation. Um, social media is also a, a challenge. And Kaylee, suddenly the problem is even bigger with the advent of generative AI, I imagine. We have seen a number of generative AI claims coming through to Africa Check, but funnily enough, I think the biggest challenge that we're still seeing when it comes to majority of, of the population is general misinformation. So sharing things that you don't necessarily know are false, but you share it because you think you're being helpful. Um, so we will be keeping an eye on generative AI, but the challenge at the moment mm. is still what you call cheap fakes, you know, the, the videos and the images that are taken out of context or very crudely manipulated. Um, and these are generally quite easy to spot. And Kaylee, difficult, I imagine, to quantify the impact of misinformation on voter behavior and leading on from that, then the integrity of the election itself. Well, we can go by what we have experienced in the past, our experience fact-checking elections previously, and we do typically see a spike in misinformation on social and traditional media. Now, that's not to say that all information shared during an election is false. Some of it will be accurate, but what it does, similar to when we had an influx of information around COVID-19, is make it difficult for voters to know what information they can trust and what they can't. So, in that sense, it can distort the electoral process, particularly in a country like South Africa. We know that print, radio and television are still the primary means by which people receive their news and information. But we do have quite a high internet penetration of over 70%. So millions of people are, are receiving news online mm. and through social media. And it's, it's really here where voters can be vulnerable to manipulation, especially where they don't have the, the media literacy skills to distinguish between what's accurate and what's false. And this is where you enter the picture. So obviously the deployment of an innovative approach and I guess better technology needs to be employed to detect and then counteract false information more effectively. Well, what we are doing with this election is going with more of a collaborative approach. It's something that we have tried and tested in elections in Kenya and Nigeria. And we felt that we could really do more when we work together, we can have a greater impact, reach more people. Um, so we've partnered not just with other fact-checking organizations, but a number of partners in the broader media industry. And this group has really just um, joined forces officially to say that we as a group have committed to helping voters critically engage with information and uh, make informed decisions in the voting booth. It is critical work that you and your colleagues are doing. Kayleigh Clifford from uh, Africa Check, thank you very much indeed. Just uh, before I leave you today on our daily poll in this State of the Nation Address Week, the question is, how do you evaluate the impact of government's efforts to improve the lives of South Africans? Um, one, significantly improved, somewhat improved, or no improvement at all. If you'd like to participate in that poll, I would invite you to go to MoneyWeb on uh, Twitter, X, or also on our LinkedIn page, and I will have the results on the program tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.